That was Megafauna, and if you're downtown tonight, you can stop in at Neurolux and listen to those guys play. Before that was Nikki Lane. She is playing the Knitting Factory on July 18th. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is The Big Tent. Welcome to Public Affairs Thursday here at Radio Boise 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. We have a good show for you today. We're going to be talking about national parks. Both Luke Fowler, my co-host, and I, Jen Schneider, were in different national parks in the last week. And so we're going to talk a little bit about our experiences there. And I'm going to tell you about a new research project I'm working on. We're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, some friends in high places <laughs> would be one way to put it. Folks who are trying to summit uh, Mount Everest. And then if we have time, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening on Capitol Hill with uh, the debate over impeachment uh, and the Trump administration. Um, but first, we're going to do a quick uh, announcement. So if you're around mid-July, you want to put this on your calendar. Oh, hey, it's the same night that Nikki Lane is playing in the Knitting Factory. So you could go to this event at Boise State and then go see an awesome concert. Um, but during uh, the day of July 18th at Boise State, um, there's going to be an event called the One Sky Event. And it's in concert with uh, Nelson Mandela Day. And at that event, they're going to be celebrating what they call leading from behind. So there's a whole series of events. And if you go to the One Sky website at Boise State, you can see the entire agenda. Uh, the keynote speaker is Polina Luangeth, uh, founder and executive director of Idaho Museum of International Diaspora. Uh, and Luke, I wanted to talk to you about this a little bit because you are involved in a project involving the Mandela Fellowship. You've been helping to organize this at Boise State this summer. It's a pretty exciting program. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, Boise State got a, a fairly big grant from the State Department um, to host what are called the Mandela Washington Fellows. Um, and this was a, a program created by uh, Obama when he was in the, uh, the White House. Um, and generally what it's kind of geared at is um, engaging and educating young African leaders to um, basically help their communities. And so it come, they come from a, a wide range of countries across sub-Saharan uh, Sub Saharan, you got thank it. Thank you, yeah. Africa. I help you. I got your back. Uh, thank you. I can't pronounce words today. <laughs> uh, they come from a, a range of countries and a range of backgrounds. So they're they're teachers, they're government managers, they're doctors. Um, they lead in NGOs. They work in the government um, and all these type of different things. And so twenty five of them will be coming to uh, Boise for six weeks. Um, they'll be participating in a, a series of events. They'll meet with community leaders, um, and then we'll also have Boise State faculty doing a series of academic sessions with them, where we'll train them on various things, things like financial management institutional collaboration, uh, climate change planning. Um, so I think there's uh, 20 different or 22 different faculty members from Boise State that will be doing these kind of uh, training sessions with them. Um, and it's largely just a public management institute that hopefully we're going to give them a lot of skills and knowledge that they take back to their countries and make their communities better places. And it's a really big deal that Boise State got this award, too, and is able to bring these um, young people to the campus this summer. Yeah, there's only a, a couple of dozen uh, universities that get this grant every year. Um, so it is a kind of elite group um, and these are not uh, so there's a, there's a lot of competition for them so it was a big deal um, we didn't originally think that we would get it especially not in our first year of application uh, but we did um, and so it is it's a pretty big deal it puts us up there with some good company and we're going to have a show later this summer that features the Mandela program and our colleague uh, Professor Brian Wampler Professor of Political Science in the School of Public Service so make sure to keep an eye out for that if you're a regular listener to the show uh, but let's go ahead and transition into these trips that you and I I just took Luke um, 
totally unrelated. We just, I guess it's not that big of a coincidence that we were both in national parks uh, during the summer. Um, But I went to Shenandoah uh, National Park, which is in Virginia, this last weekend. And where were you? Uh, I was in the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone, so not nearly as far away, but over in a Wyoming, Montana area. And what was your experience like? This is not the first time you have been there, obviously. You got married. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, the reason I went back was it was mine and my wife's first anniversary. So we went back and stayed at the Jackson Link Lodge where we got married and so we were going back uh, celebrating one year of, of wonderful marriage uh so it was interesting um so may is not tourist season yet technically mm-hmm. but memorial day this weekend is when it kind of started up um so the weather was rainy on some days and beautiful on others but uh it struck me of like how busy and how many tourists were there and like how bad the traffic was and my wife who uh spent a summer there working during college uh was like oh this is not bad at all this is like just wait till you know july and all that And i've never actually been in july because we always go in the early part of the season to avoid the crowds um because she knows that i have no patience and so it drives me crazy <laughs> like being in second traffic and waiting in lines and stuff so uh, she doesn't want me to be grumpy on our vacation uh so like we go and, and you know it's it's interesting to to be there in the park and seeing all these amazing things but then there's like a bear on the side of the road right and it's cool you're in the middle of nowhere and there's a bear on the side of the road and then there's 200 people like all crowded at a safe difference taking pictures and there's lines of cars so it's kind of a kind of a weird experience to a certain extent because you don't really expect that um so it's but i I love going and it's a wonderful wonderful place to go yeah we're going to talk a little bit about overcrowding in the national parks today but i think yellowstone in particular i haven't been to a ton of national parks but of all the parks i've been to yellowstone to me feels the most overcrowded it's the most car centric and it's also feels to me like like the most commercialized like it's the most managed experience you i think you could almost have in any national park in the country no i'll agree with that i think it's partially because it's so iconic i mean mm-hmm. one thing that makes the yellowstone and grand tetons really interesting is it's one of the largest intact ecosystems in north america um and so it's all been preserved and so it's very interesting the the things that have to go there but also you have to think like a lot of national parks like it's impossible to get to Jackson. Um, it's possible to get to Gardner, Montana, or West Yellowstone, or any of these places. So you essentially have to rent a car to get there. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that kind of adds to this is that it's so rural in a lot of ways, um, but it's also so iconic. Like it is the like number one national park destination for the most part. Yeah, absolutely, and for good reason. It is amazing and beautiful, and keeping people to their cars is part of what protects it. Um, but also, air pollution in that park is is very bad and is causing a lot of um, ecological problems as well. So it's this tension between these are the people's parks and we want them to have access to it these belong to all of us and at what point do you start to protect them a little bit more from how much we, we're loving them to death as some of my colleagues like to say well also the like also is is protecting people within these parks um so i saw a lot of things that i was like oh my god this this is about to be bad um, or like people like approaching wild animals like getting very close to elk which if you don't know what an elk is it's a very very large mammal and it will kill you if you if it kicks you or you know rams you and so people are just like oh there's an elk i'm gonna walk up and take a picture i'm like oh this is about to get bad right and so there's bears and people are like oh let me roll down my window and take a picture of the bear like no don't do that so um and then like uh, i just remember we're coming around this uh corner like this kind of windy road in one of the mountains and there's this uh indian guy trying to take picture like a picture of some people and he's just backing out into the road and just like not paying attention to the traffic and i'm just like this guy's about to get smashed um and so luckily we didn't see any major accidents we did uh, come we did ride by a car accident that happened uh briefly before we were there but so it's also like a safety issue right where you get a lot of people in cars that are being distracted by a lot of stuff not paying attention 
attention. Like, so I, I'm I'm actually surprised more people don't get hurt in the park every year. Yeah, and there's been a lot of popular press coverage in the last few weeks about the sort of Instagram effect for national parks and the ways in which Instagram is both sort of popularizing national parks and increasing visitation to them. And Instagram seeking behaviors in parks is endangering visitors and wildlife. So people, in order to get the best picture they possibly can, are really making some not very wise decisions. I was in um, Switzerland earlier uh, in the spring, and I saw some uh, tourists who were poised right at the edge of an alp, an actual mountain, an alp, and were edging like closer and closer to the edge just to get the perfect selfie. And I was like, it would be so easy for them to have fallen off of that mountain. Oh, yeah. We saw a group of tourists that uh, basically at Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone had gone over one of the stone barriers and kind of gone out on this ledge. And I was like, I don't think they're supposed to be out there. And they're just you know, hundreds of feet up. And I was like, if they trip, it's, mm-hmm. it's done because there's no protection out there. Yeah, and um, it's not hypothetical. People do die in national parks. Yosemite has had a number of deaths um, in the last several years. So it's something to be aware of. The picture's not worth it, my friends. Enjoy the natural beauty and try to exist in the moment. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come, come back, we're going to continue this discussion of national parks. I'm going to tell you a little bit about a new project I'm working on around race, representation, and national parks. So stay tuned. Hello, this is Justin from the Random Canyon Growlers, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, community radio for Boise and beyond. We're back on the big tent uh, on Radio Boise, and we were talking about national parks, and particularly my vacation to uh, Yellowstone, Uh, but Jen was also in a national park this weekend for... uh, professional purposes which might be a little bit more applicable to the show (laughs) so jen why don't you tell us about your experience in shannon doe and why you were there so um luke and i are both professors in the school of public service at boise state and my research has to do with an area called environmental communication and i uh, am very lucky to have an amazing writing team of three scholars from other universities across the nation and one of them is that as at James Madison University, which is in Harrisonburg in Virginia. And so we are starting to work on this new project dealing with race representation in the national parks. So there's been some good work done already that looks at why people of color are not visiting our national parks. So I'm not talking now about international tourists. I think if if you've gone to national parks anytime recently, you've probably seen a ton of international tourists. In fact, when I was in Shenandoah this weekend, I would say the bulk of the people I saw were probably not from the United States. But if we look at the domestic visitation numbers, <clears throat> the numbers of people, the, num- the percentage of visitors who are people of color who go to parks is incredibly small, 10 to 15 percent for African-Americans, for example, and even lower for Latinos. And there's been some good work that's looked at why that is. Is it because of cost, for example? Is it cost a lot to get to the parks? Is it because when you get into the parks, the visitor centers don't have enough sort of interpretive material that might appeal to people of color or talk about issues? For example, if you go to Yosemite, there is some signage now that talks about how Native Americans were forcibly removed from the park when it was first constituted. So do we need to do more work like that? And what my team is looking at is not um, just what's happening in the park itself, 
but what happens as you're trying to get to the park? So if you're a domestic visitor and you live in the area and you have to drive to national parks, which we just talked about, how welcoming or unwelcoming is the environment leading in to the national park? So what started this off was uh, my colleague, Pete, who's at, in Virginia, he went to take his son to visit Shenandoah, his son-in-law, who is a person of color. And as they were making their way <clears throat> toward the park, they, uh, Pete, <laughs> because he, I guess because he had a person of color in his car, started to notice that there were Confederate flags everywhere along the way. Um, and other signs that I think in our current political climate might be interpreted as somewhat hostile. Now in the South, I know things are really complicated, um, but it got us thinking, what if we started paying attention to the corridors that people take to get to parks and the ways in which those might suggest to underrepresented minorities, you're welcome here, we want you here, or on the other end of the spectrum, you might be in danger if you're, say your car broke down. So this is the start of a new project for us. No, that's very interesting. And I guess uh, having gone to a lot of national parks and, you know, Grand Tetons and Yellowstone, like there's a couple of towns here and there. But I mean, again, your car breaks down. Um, you have there's limited motels there's little limited chain restaurants. There's limited uh, ways that like things that you might be familiar with that you might be comfortable with. And so you get in these kind of areas. And so if you're not comfortable or you're not, you know, greeted friendly, like you, this can be very intimidating and they can kind of make you very kind of scared to go there. Um, and so definitely having grown up in the South, I can say there's a lot of towns like that in the South that I'm just like, all right, we're not stopping here. Like we're going to continue to go through town. Um, so it's very interesting to, to think about that as a barrier to access. Mm -hmm. And not to say that somebody who has a Confederate flag is necessarily going to be violent towards a person of color. We're not looking sort of at the individual level, but we're thinking kind of at the systems level, a broader cultural level, what might be some of the disincentives um, for park visitation, and we think that's one of them. So, for example, last fall, I, um, my field site's Yosemite, and so I went to Yosemite, and one of the things that we're mapping with that park is how close it is to what's called the state of Jefferson, or North State, California, and that's a part of California and Southern Oregon that has been trying to secede for a long time, and that has been getting sort of further and further to the right um, politically, and especially under Trump, has sort of flourished with a lot of anti-immigration rhetoric. So you have the Central Valley, which has a large Hispanic-Latino um, population, and you have this secessionist, largely white movement. And if you're coming from the north or from the west, say from Sacramento, you've flown into Sacramento, you're going to have to drive through parts of Jefferson, see signage, encounter maybe large trucks with rifles on them, that sort of thing. And again, not that a large truck is means racism or means hostility, but if you put all of those signs together, it can communicate um, a, a feeling of unwelcomeness. Now, what you do about it is another question. I don't know. No, that's very interesting. Um, particularly as we talk about it, and kind of the question about what you do with it, right? You make it uh, like fly. If you ever flown into Jack, like I have friends that have flown into Jackson, uh, Wyoming, and it's not particularly a good flight, um, and it's not cheap. Um, and so, like all my family flew into Salt Lake and then drove up, but like that can be a difficult drive. And so, I mean, that's a that's an interesting question because um, one of the reasons that we these 
parks were founded uh, historically was because like based on the idea of democracy like these were supposed to be publicly owned and we we're all supposed to have access to it not just ri- rich people or, or people that live near them that we all have access to it so there's kind of a, a question about like how democratic are these parks if we're limiting access to certain people like if you just have the money if you just have you know the right uh, like look to you right yeah although I would say that um, it, it pays to pay attention to individual park histories so if we look at Yosemite for example which was founded in part by John Muir if you look at his writings he very much talks about wanting to keep the sort of unwashed masses out of the park and he specifically talks about uh, peoples of color and the ways in which they sully the landscape they sort of problematize the sublime experience of nature and we also have other natural spaces that were designed to keep out buses for example to keep certain um, economic classes and people of color from entering so not all parks were designed that way but I do think this is where these two ideologies come into conflict like let's democratize things these are our parks as Americans and they have these histories where racism is sort of embedded in interesting ways yeah and of course like this was a a huge issue I guess a year maybe a year or two ago when Zinke uh, proposed raising the park fees and one of the big pushbacks were like if you're going to double or triple the park fees yeah that might raise some revenue but then you're keeping out a lot of people who this might be the only vacation they can afford this is their only opportunity to go and so now you're pricing them out of the market so is this then just something that rich people can access like how is that fair um and so again we're talking about what is put here naturally right like we didn't build this it just exists and now we're, we're building corridors around it and saying who can and get can't get access like where's the fairness in that where's the justice um, where's the democracy in that but also you know where's the balance of protecting it as a natural resource Well, that's pretty much a perfect segue to talking about our next segment, which is going to be a focus on (laughs) Mount Everest and the death zone. Uh, So we're going to take a quick break here at the Big Tent on Radio Boise. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Steve Martin from Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers. You're listening to Radio Boise on KRBX 89.9 FM, community radio for the Treasure Valley. Perfect. We're back on the Big Tent on Radio Boise, and uh, we were talking about national parks and some of the the interesting kind of balance of issues that go on there, access versus protection and all this type of stuff. Um, But one of the interesting stories that's been on the news uh, lately has been with Mount Everest, um, the largest mountain in the world, or at least the tallest uh, that you can climb. Um, And a lot of issues have gone on there, particularly with the number of deaths that have occurred in the last two months or so um and so uh we wanted to kind of talk about that because it it hits hits on some of the same stuff right um about access versus protection and so really what a a lot of the the expert commentary will will say is that the nepalese government because everest is in nepal um has issued too many permits and what's happened is that you get a lot of people that are preparing to summit um and when they get up there the weather hasn't been good this year, so they get trapped, and they just wait for the weather to clear up. And then when the weather clears up, everybody tries to summit, and there's a long line. And so, so to give you some perspective, last year was like 11 days of good weather. This yeah. year it's been three. Yes, and so there's been these great photos that have come out where it's just like – 
a high school lunch line of like 200 people in line down the side of Mount Everest, just like waiting. The problem is that that's all waiting in what's called the death zone. <laughs> um, and so I read that uh, at that altitude, uh, every breath has about a third of the oxygen and it does at uh, sea level. Um, and so like the longer you stay up there, the more likely you are to die of the conditions. And particularly if weather comes in, um, you trip. Like these are all like basic injuries up there become, li- become life-threatening very quickly, right? And the longer you spend up there, the more likely the less likely you are to survive. And there's a real socioeconomic element to this, right? I think my understanding of doing something like this in the past was that it was indeed for the very wealthy. It can cost thirty to forty thousand dollars to do this, including, you know, your equipment and travel and training. <coughs> and that um, very few people would get to do it because permits were kept at a low number and that you would need to do like some conditioning, physical conditioning and preparation to climb the tallest mountain in the world. And so of course it's very dangerous. It's a sort of a great honor for the elite to get to summit Mount Everest. But what we have now is this confluence of uh, some corruption in the Nepalese government. So too many permits issued like you said we have the shorter weather window and i think we have a lot more rich people in the world who can afford to go so the other problem we're ha- we're seeing here in this case is that you have people who are not well conditioned but who can pay a lot of money to sort of be helicoptered into base camp and then be popped into this line of people waiting and it is a single file line of people with oxygen masks on and they're waiting in this line sometimes three and four hours and you get to spend 15 to 20 minutes on the summit when you get there on your way there you are passing dead bodies dead bodies in tents and a significant amount of trash right like so you're taking an experience that i think is supposed to be pristine and sublime and i mean sublime and like an awe-inspiring, terror-inspiring way. And again, you're like commercializing it into something that feels really gross to me. Maybe I don't understand, but I just would never want to do it. No, no. I I, I mean, I don't want to do it because it's climbing Mount Everest, and I'm pretty sure that would kill me. But (laughs) Yeah, also, I couldn't do it. Yeah, no, I'm not nearly good enough shape. (laughs) Uh, I get winded walking up the stairs. Uh, But that's neither here nor there. But, you know, I think you're you're hitting on it correctly, which was, I, I think, 20 years ago you know that i just read like this year was the 66th anniversary of the first summit right 20 years ago like this was still like an elite group of people maybe a couple of dozen climbed it every Mm -hmm. year but this year there was like 400 people that got permits so 400 people plus their guides and so you're talking about hundreds of people that were getting up and down that mountain and so it it is becoming commercialized um it is people that like you said that aren't really prepared to do it but just bought their way in and now uh, one of the articles i read some commentary was like oh yeah you know this this mountain from or the climb from camp four to the summit should take about 12 hours you get people that aren't prepared it takes them 20 hours right and then there the people behind them in line are then caught longer and longer and this is what's all contributed to it but it goes back to this idea of access versus protection now the other stories that have come out earlier in the season is uh how much trash is on this mountain um and particularly with the uh, the glaciers melting on, on mount everest they're talking about like how much uh, like human uh, human will say waste if you, <laughs> if you read uh, what i'm getting at there uh, along with just straight out trash is on that mountain it's starting to to melt and come off of it and uh, like the nepalese government's like oh y'all have to start we have to start uh hauling trash off the mountain right because it's become like a huge waste dump yeah 
Yeah, it's gross. Uh, and I mean, again, like this is a natural wonder of the world that, uh, well, people we've let too many people access. So there's a balance here that goes on with it. And again, the Nepalese government probably doesn't think about these things as hard as the U.S. government does. Is this sort of a case of the tragedy of the commons then, Luke? I mean, as somebody who thinks about environmental policy, like there's this uh, balance between making it too cheap and too easy for everybody to access the natural resource and making sure that you have economic development and that we can use the resource sustainably. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a good, like, I guess, framework to put it in. There's a lot of w- ways that we think about environmental policy in general is generally to think, I mean, what is the incentive for us to act responsibly towards the environment in general? Because uh, for those that are familiar with the idea of the tragedy of the commons, generally the way the incentives are set up is for you to extract as much benefit as possible from the natural resources because the benefit is yours, but the cost of doing so is shared amongst everybody. So if you climb Mount Everest and deface it or mess it up or whatever like great you got the experience but then it's everybody else's problem and one thing that we learn you know anybody that's done a group project will learn when it's everybody's responsibility it's no one's responsibility mm-hmm. and so that's what we find in <laughs> right. all of these that's a firm rule um but i mean like that's what we find in a lot of these national parks like what is the incentive to actually take care of them as the individual um and unfortunately there's not really one yeah it's also it feels to me like there's a a important element of privatization that we have to think about too and I think about um, when we had the government shutdown and there were no park service people in our national parks and we saw people riding off trails and trash cans were overflowing a ton of volunteers showed up to try to deal with some of these issues but it just was beyond the scope of what they could do and so this is you know one of the reasons we have governments with regulations is to protect the commons because we as individuals often just cannot do it right and we don't do it well yeah and uh so i remember being in yellowstone with my uncle uh, last year and i remember like we're sitting and looking back across this valley and i was like you know like coming here reminds me of why i do what i do because when you look at it like you see the power of what government can do when it's aimed at a good cause but then like you also go and you you see the line of all the the asian tourist bus and the people dumping trash and like what like harassing wildlife and you're like oh yeah maybe this is not a good example of what government can do because clearly we're not doing as well as we should yeah i don't know did did you ever have a chance to visit national parks in the south when you live uh yeah i've been through some um particularly like smoky mountains and stuff like that um again like those are are less i don't call them less popular but they're definitely less attended um you don't have as many people as what you do in shenandoah or uh you know yellowstone so the problems are a little different but again a lot of those end up as you were talking about previously um end up in very rural places uh, but there's also like a degree of uh, commercialization and I hope I'm not about to offend any of our uh, listeners but like Gatlinburg Tennessee might be one of the tackiest places in the world <laughs> now and it is right outside of the save Smoky your Ma- money go to Dollywood yeah I mean like like th- when I was a kid like we went to the Smoky Mountain National Park and it's right there in Tennessee and North Carolina it was really cool and like the towns were just like these small mountain towns and now they are so tacky and you very go touristy. and you're like where am mm-hmm. I at mm-hmm. right so it just kind of takes some of the fun out of it when you're going for this natural experience and there's like the uh like trade like this oh well they have show tunes and operas and all this type of like stuff and they're really really like cliche and so it's just kind of well here's one of the paradoxes we we are noticing in our work though is that going back to representation and access especially for people of color who live here in the united states is that we saw many more uh folks who we identified as domestic people of color in Shenandoah than we did in the neighboring national forest. And so there is some protection that I think is provided by commercialization and the boundaries of the park also. So like as you're 
if you think about it like you're driving through an area and you see some familiar businesses or something or access to gro- uh, grocery stores and gas stations that provides maybe a sense of safety and i think that's true in the park as well when you have national forests or national monuments that maybe are not as built up or as commercialized which is the experience we prefer to have. It feels more natural and more wild. At the same time, it's also more socially wild, and there aren't a lot of those safety mechanisms in place either. So it's a really interesting paradox to think about. Yeah, no, that is interesting. And I mean, I, I think those same things, and certainly they, they apply to people of color, but they, I mean, like, apply to people that aren't familiar with the area, that have never been and don't have connections there. So that's, that's just interesting in a lot of different ways, right? Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. We didn't get to impeachment, but, you know, tune into any other news source in the world and you'll probably get some good coverage on that. Hey, and I want to announce, too, that next week is a really important show. Corey Cook, who's one of the founders of The Big Tent, uh, a year ago with Justin Vaughn, who's also no longer with us here at The Big Tent. Corey Cook is leaving Boise State. He's been our dean at the School of Public Service for four years now, and he is moving back to California uh, to St. Mary's College. He is going to come in and do do a one-hour special with us here on the Big Ten. I hear there's going to be some talk of basketball. I hear there's also going to be a lot of awkward laughter and long pauses. (laughs) I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, Anyway, tune in. He's going to share some of his thoughts on Boise State and on uh, the Treasure Valley and on uh, NBA basketball, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So make sure you tune in next week at 4 p.m. here on the Big Ten at Radio Boise. We'll talk to you then.